Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Time to get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is March 31st, 2010. It is a Wednesday, and it is also episode 410. That's right, 410 times we've gotten together. We're going to do it one more time. And today we're going to kind of continue on what we were talking about yesterday in a different way, I guess. More focus on what happens to cities and towns in decay than we'll talk about finding the rural land away from the cities and towns. That was kind of the focus yesterday. But we did talk about things like what has happened in, in or what is going to happen in North Haven, Connecticut, a relatively small city, uh, because of the closing of one of their major industries being the Marlin Firearms Plant. And we talked about the death of Detroit and how it, the city is literally dying in front of us right now. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is going to start out with an article I originally found on LouRockwell.com about a gated community in California with homes ranging from three to $400,000 that was a paradise a couple of years ago. Get a gated community and what's happened there. And I'm actually going to read that article to you because I think you need to hear it to really take in what has happened there. And the author did a great job. And then we'll talk a little bit more about how that affects us and what, what we would see in different types of communities across the United States with similar decays, be they uh, regional in effect or national in effect. Before that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you uh, by making sure the show is here every day by supporting the show. Our sponsor of the day, number one today, is Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. What is a survival seed bank? Well, I'll tell you what it is at first. I think people get this misconception. They ask me about, you know, the seeds in it and the, the cost of them and what have you. It is not so you can buy it, go out and plant it tomorrow. It's just like when you store food, you probably have food that you just buy at the store and buy what you store, store what you eat, like I say, to do all the time. You probably have food that you'll maybe can or put away yourself. Maybe you'll dehydrate some food. But if you want really long-term storage, 10, 20-year storage for your food, you might go out and buy commercially prepared stored food. Things like Mountain House and providing pantry and things like that. This is like that for your seeds, so that 20 years from now, if you have to rely on them, you have a store pack of seeds that will still be fresh, viable, and grow for you. Uh, they've been specially packaged to make that happen. So that's what a survival seed bank is. Recommend you check them out. Their banner, like all the rest of our sponsors, is, of course, on the website. Next up today is silverandgoldshop.com. Probably going to say this at least one more time. Uh, that used to be Tea Party Silver. It didn't go away. It didn't get annexed. All it did was change its name. Mary Beth Maidmont, who runs Tea Party Silver, has now changed the name to silverandgoldshop.com because she's brought in new products and made the product uh, a line broader than just you know the tea party rounds and the few rounds that were around them. So I'll tell you what, though. What has not changed over there is the service. Every single thing that I ever hear back about Mary Beth is she's wonderful. She takes good care of us. She gives great service. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. Uh, moving on from there, I want to remind you guys about the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. We have shirts, we have hats, we have challenge coins, we have all kinds of cool stuff. Please check out the gear shop. Last but not least, 
check out the Members Support Brigade. Uh, if you join the Members Brigade, you get to do cool things like put Members Support Brigade member in your signature in our forum. Uh, you get to do some other cool things, though, like get discounts to about 18 vendors, and I'm working on number 19 right now. Got a new one coming soon. It's going to be really, really cool. You also get free videos. You get free ebooks. Of course, they're not really free. Other people have to pay for them. You just get them for free. Uh, it's a pretty good deal. It's, it's definitely a good return of your investment. And um, you could become a member simply by contributing $5 a month or $50 a year. Remember, I also take AOCS-approved silver uh, at face value, or I will take two ounces of silver uh, of any other kind of silver for a year membership. If you want to pay by silver, download the form to pay by check or money order. Instead of sending me check or money order, send me silver. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk about uh, this story that I found that just really intrigued me. Okay, this article is uh, in the L.A. Times, and it's called From Bulcolic Bliss to Gated Ghetto. And it says, Hemet's Willow Walk track was family-friendly, then the recession hit. Um, and it's by a guy named Alan Samuels. And I usually don't read entire articles, especially out of the L.A. Times, but I think this one warrants it. So let's, uh, let's take a look at what this guy has to say. Reporting from Hemet, oh, real quick, I didn't know where the hell Hemet was, so I looked it up on, it's either Hemet or Heme, or it's H-E-M-E-T is the name of this town. It's about 90 miles west of Los Angeles in the San Jacinto Valley. Reporting from Hemet, the gated community in Hemet uh, doesn't seem like the best place for Eddie and Maria Lopez to raise their family anymore. Vandals knocked down the streetlights in front of the Lopez's five-bedroom home and then took advantage of the darkness to try to steal a van. Cars are parked four deep in the driveway next door where a handful of men rent rooms. And up and down their blocks, the handsome single-family homes are pa have padlocked doors, orange, no trespassing signs, and broken front windows. Here's where it gets interesting. It wasn't what the Lopez's pictured when they agreed to pay $440,000 for their 5,000-square-foot house in 2006. The 427-home Willow Walk Track, built by developer D.R. Horton, features eight distinct villages within its block walls. Along with spacious homes, Willow Walk boasted four lakes, a community pool, a clubhouse, fanciful street names such as Pink Savory Way and Bee Balm Road added to the bullet image. Young families seem to occupy every house, throwing block parties and holiday get-togethers and distributing newsletters about the neighborhood, Eddie Lopez recalled. We loved how everything was family-oriented. All of our kids would run around together, said Lopez, a 41-year-old construction supervisor and father of seven. Now everybody is gone. I'll read that to you again. A 41-year-old construction supervisor and father of seven. And they bought a $440,000 house. Now everybody is gone. Home foreclosures have devastated neighborhoods throughout the country, but the transformation from suburban paradise to blighted community has been especially stark in places like Willow Walk, isolated developments on the far fringes of metropolitan areas that found ready buyers when home prices were soaring, but then saw an exodus as values crashed. Vacant homes are sprinkled throughout Willowock, betrayed by foot-high grass. Others are rented, including to some families that use government Section 8 vouchers to live in homes with granite countertops and vaulted ceilings. When the development opened in 2006, buyers were drawn to the area by an advertising describing it as a gated lakeshore community. Now in, many in Hemet call Willowock a gated ghetto, said John Oshie, a local real estate agent. 
There are dozens of places like Willow Walk, and they are turning into America's newest slums, says Christopher Leinberger, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute. With home values at a fraction of their peak, he said it no longer makes sense to live so far from commercial centers where the jobs are concentrated. We built too much of the wrong product in the wrong locations, Leinberger said. Thanks to overwhelming demographic changes and shifts in preference, by 2030, there could be 25 million more suburban homes on large lots than are needed, said Arthur C. Nelson of the University of Utah. Nelson believes as baby boomers age and younger generations buy real estate, the populations will abandon remote McMansions for smaller homes closer to shops, jobs, and other necessities of life. Whatever their number, the presence of unwanted or abandoned homes stands to be a burden on local governments for years to come. As cash-strapped cities and counties continue to continue uh, have to spend precious resources to patrol the neighborhoods and clean up the unkempt yards and abandoned homes. There are cities saying to us, I used to have eight code enforcement officers, now I only have one. Gee. Uh, says Bill Higgins, a staff attorney for the League of California Cities. Boy, that sounds like an important job, doesn't it? About 80 California municipalities are striking back, enforcing ordinances that fine lenders up to $1,000 a day for not maintaining properties that have been foreclosed, Higgins said. But most cities don't have the resources to force absentee owners or renters to keep up their property. In other words, folks, instead of blaming the people that abandoned the house, they're blaming the bank that holds the mortgage and making them fix it up and finding the bank. Because... Just like Dillinger said, you rob banks because that's where the money is. In Hemet, city officials have simply boarded up the homes of some troubled neighborhoods. Plywood covers the windows of dozens of apartments on Valley View Drive. Resident David Hall says it keeps prostitutes and drug dealers out. Willow Walk presents a different challenge. The development promised a Tiffany neighborhood for what was something closer to a target price. So $440,000 for a five-bedroom house is a target price. Okay. I guess they mean a Walmart price, but they didn't really want to say that because they wanted to make it sound a little bit better. So it's Target, or as some ladies say, Target, saying it's French. Anyway, leave the world behind as you unwind in our picturesque lakes, cooed one advertisement which touted intimate botanical gardens and walking trails and tranquil lakes and other attractions. At first, the reality matched the come-ons. Maria Lopez, a stay-at-home mother, recalls gazing at the mountains in the distance as her children played with groups of neighborhood neighbors their own age. The community pool was just a few blocks away. She says she used to let her older children, ages 13 and 14, go there by themselves. Now she accompanies her children to the pool, though it has been closed as of late, because the people who now hang out there, quote, have no class, end quote, she said, and sits in front of uh, out front with her children as they play in their yard. My next door neighbors, there are so many people living there, I don't know who they are, she said. Walking through the development, there's not much evidence of well-kept yards and friendly families, Maria Lopez finally re- fondly recalls. Many of the people answering a knock say they're renters or won't open their doors more than a crack to see who's on their doorstep. Red and white for sale signs dot the neighborhood, clashing with the golds and browns of the homes. The contrast between occupied and empty houses is evident on one block, where high grass and weedy clumps gives way to neatly mowed lawn with handwritten signs pleading, please do not let your dog poop on our yard. Homeowner Norma Hernandez, one of the few people outside on a recent Sunday afternoon, can point out which families are permanent on her block. 
Rented, owned, rented, 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 she said, gesturing at the gargantuan houses across the street, one after another. It's bad, she said, shaking her head. Nacho Gomez is paid by absentee owners to look after their rental properties. Currently, he's taking care of 17. Doing a check of the homes on a recent Thursday, he left his van's engine running as he inspected a shattered window in one property. A lot of them can't pay rent, and they leave the house a mess, Gomez said, referring to the tenants. He has had to fix holes, punch through walls, replace refrigerators, dishwashers, and other appliances, even ovens stolen by renters on their way out. So not only do they, they skip out and not pay the rent for the last month, they take the appliances with them when they go. Those tenants appear to be the exception, and the renters provided at least one benefit. Without them, there would even be more vacant homes. Even so, their presence has fundamentally changed the character of what was once sold as an exclusive community. The Willow Walk Homeowners Association, gee, that's great, a homeowners association, is trying to recapture some of the community's lost spirit. In recent months, it launched a trash committee. Members pick up rubbish in the park and started a neighborhood watch group to keep an eye on resident homes. But it wasn't enough for Angelica Stewart. Her family, who are leaving the $318,000 home they bought in 2006, to Stewart living in a gated community is absurd when drug busts are regular occurrences. It's not worth it for us to live in this neighborhood. The Lopez family plans to stick it out, knowing they can't sell the house for anywhere near the 440 they paid for it. Based on comparable prices in the neighborhood, the place is probably worth about $170,000 now, maybe less. They're petitioning their bank for a loan modification. Despite the financial loss, the fact that Eddie Lopez uh, and the fact that Eddie Lopez's hours at work were cut because of a construction slowdown. We're going to talk about this when we're done, almost done here, folks. Uh, the family holds out for a brighter future. They're hoping that Willow Walk will someday become the idyllic neighborhood they once knew, nearly as perfect as the advertisements had promised. When we moved in, everybody was a homeowner. Now everybody's renting them out, Eddie Lopez said. But I have to say, there's nothing I can do. Interesting article, isn't it, folks? I know I don't ever take that much time to read something, but if I just told you about that, I don't think I would have covered it in the detail that was necessary there to uh, to understand what's happened. Um, let's take a few things out of there that really stick out for me. Mr. Lopez, I'm sure, is a great guy. He's probably a hard worker. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that even though it's Central California, he's an American citizen or legal resident, and he's supposed to be here with his seven kids and his wife. And you know what? If they bought a house like that, they're probably not living on welfare and food stamps. At least they probably weren't when they bought the house. But I just want to you know, go down on two things right now that explain why this entire mess has happened in the first place. Construction supervisor... $440,000 house. And there you have it. And that's really what it's all about. As I've been saying over and over again, if this guy was a construction supervisor in San Jacinto area of California, he's about 90 miles from L.A., so he probably wasn't working in L.A. or even at Tanskirts. He's probably working building the same house as he was living. Which, let's be fair. That is a good thing in a way. I, I don't think he's being paid enough to be able to do it, but it's nice the, the fact that you, you, you know, it would be nice if people that built houses could afford to buy one of the houses they built. It, it used to be the case that if you worked at Ford, you could definitely buy any Ford car or Chevy, so you could afford to buy the car you built. So there's a little nostalgia there, but it doesn't work when the money doesn't work out right. 
And here's the reality. A guy like that is not making enough money to buy a $440,000 house. Even, and I understand why he might want a big house. He's got seven kids. That could be a problem of itself, but people are free to make that choice if they want to. I'm not going to get in anybody's way with how many kids they're going to have. But here you got this guy, the construction supervisor. Now, here's the other thing. We also know that this guy's not like a high-end construction supervisor that's on a salary because we get this little piece at the end. His hours were cut back. So we've got an hourly worker who works in construction in a labor market dominated by illegal aliens. And that market, even if this guy's legit, that market is dominated, as anybody that lives out there knows, by illegal labor. So that illegal labor drives down the market rate of the labor in the first place. So this guy's just not making enough money to buy a house. But in 2006, he was able to buy that house. Why? Who gets the blame for this? Lots of people. We can start out, if we want to blame presidents, we can blame Jimmy Carter. We can, we can definitely sort of blame Ronald Reagan. We can definitely blame George Bush the first. We can absolutely blame Bill Clinton, and we can 100% categorically blame ass clown George Bush the second, because there were policies specifically started by Carter, but then really driven hard years and years later by Clinton and Bush too, insisting that lower income and minority families be able to buy homes, and this was done through Freddie and Fannie, and it was done through a lot of other lenders as well. George Bush went out and said, I want, you know, 3 million new minority homeowners this year. He did that in front of uh, a board. It was either at Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. I don't remember which one, but he was in front of uh, a board panel there speaking to them as the President of the United States. These things are happening now because they were set in motion and there is no other possible result that could occur. You can't sell property to people that can't afford it and expect them to continually uh, pay their bills on time. Now, I actually really admire Mr. Lopez, though, and I'll tell you why. He's still there. He's still paying his bills. I don't know how he's doing it, but I admire his integrity for sticking it out and maintaining his commitment and the word he gave when he signed the loan contract. I just think he signed the wrong loan contract in the first place. And um, isn't it kind of like indentured servitude, folks? He's held captive now. See, here's the problem. This is what I don't think people are seeing in these things. The city has a real problem now. See, um, California has this law. It's Prop 21 or Prop 27, whatever. It's Prop 20-something. And what it says is that there's a very strict limit on how much the, uh, the, the, the governments as a whole from uh, county, city, what have you, can increase property tax values year after year after year. So you have people in California that are living in homes at least you know a few years ago that maybe you would have appraised for a million and a half dollars, but they're paying taxes on, on it as though the house is worth 200000 This has actually been a very good thing in some ways for for the neighborhoods of California because it's kept stability in the neighborhood. So what has happened is people that normally would have sold their homes and and moved elsewhere have stayed put. And uh, there is some benefit to that. Unfortunately, California has chosen to be the union of Soviet socialist Californites and has tried to put in social program after social program after social program after social program and doesn't have enough of a tax base to really fund a lot of the things that they want to do. 
Now, at the state level and all, they have other reasons. It's not property taxes that are killing them. But at the local levels, a lot of these local social justice initiatives and these other nonsensical crap that they've done out there would depend on a tax base that's primarily based on property values. So, a lot of these outlying communities that wanted to play all of the socialistic games of California decided, well, we need some more money. Now, how are we going to get more money? Well, we can't raise taxes on people until they move. We need to put people into new homes. So a lot of the stuff that was built out there was done with a lot of tax incentives and shucking and jiving and backdoor deals and, hey, we build these great big communities. And a lot of the builders initially, and Horton probably will never say this publicly, but they had things like this come on to them. Hey, look, man, we need you guys to build a, build a community over here. And they, hey, we got to sell the houses. Hey, don't worry about it. Hey, loans are easy to come by. It's good business. Build the houses. People will buy them. And this rubber stamp cycle went through. Now, here's what the cities are banking on. We'll get all these people in there, and then we can tax the crap out of them because we have a brand new home value of four hundred, three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to work with, and this proposition nonsense won't get in our way. We'll have brand new, newly valued homes that we can tax as being built. And there was not a lot of new home construction in a lot of the California areas. That's why they had to go 90 miles outside of town. Population density high, people don't want to move, so uh, there's a lot of competition for the real estate, so you move the families out to the suburbs. Except instead of having a reasonable distance for suburbs, 20 miles, these guys had distances to their suburbs of like 90. So all of that kind of, you know, kind of mixed up together in this mosh posh of disaster, but here's the real problem now for the cities. The cities now don't have the tax base either. Because if you're not paying your mortgage, you're not paying your property taxes. I guarantee you the banks are not going to keep paying the property taxes, especially at the assessed value. Uh, they'll go in and cut deals with the city to pay absolutely the minimum the city will take to not take the house away. And at some point, the banks will even say, you want it, you can have it. You want to reseize it and sell it at a tax sale? We don't care because we're not getting anything out of it. We can't sell this damn thing. There's another thing in that article that, that kind of caught my attention. It said that that big old five-bedroom house is now valued at closer to $170,000. You could probably buy that house for $170,000 in Texas right now in a really nice community that still looks like that one was supposed to. There are parts of this country that have just gotten stupid with real estate. California, some parts of the Northeast... Florida chief among them, and if you'll notice, they're the places that have had the biggest problems with this recession. Now, there's been other places where it's industry-centered. Detroit, obviously, I don't think that the property values were insane in the Detroit area, uh, or much of the Midwest, honestly. I think they stayed in check in a lot of places, a few areas. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin was a, kind of a little bubble in of itself and all, but most of the areas throughout the, the middle of the United States didn't go completely berserk with this stuff. And where they've had real problems is the industry failures we talked about yesterday. These boutique communities like Manhattan and New York City and parts of New England and the Florida coast and California, these places have hit it really hard because they had this, this complete imaginary inflation. So the problem with the house is it was never worth $440,000 in the first place for what it was. It was worth four forty because in California, if you want to buy something, that's an entry-level price. Just a few miles closer to the city, 
That's an entry-level home price. So this guy moves out an extra 30 miles. Now he's 90 miles away or, you know, what have you. Maybe it's an extra 40 miles. But he's willing to do it. And he's willing to look for construction work wherever he can find it so he can drive and his kids can have a nice house. But the fact of the matter is that even though he's made it right and he's done everything he can to, to, to keep his house uh, paid for and taken care of, that most people in his situation that were there with him couldn't do it. So now we have this falling apart, decaying area. But I want you to think about what it really is. <clears throat> it's a huge block of homes in a gorgeous neighborhood, built beautifully with great new construction materials. The houses were being built right up into 2006, so you're probably looking at the neighborhood taking about four years to be built. So you'll get homes that were built between 2002 and 2006, and now it's only 2010. A gated community, four lakes, community swimming pool, neighborhood association. That You've got to get that part to really appreciate the stark contrast of what this place has become in four years. And it tells us something about the belief that a lot of people out there have that, oh, it can't happen here. It won't ever happen to me. It won't ever happen in this place. We're too strong for that. It's too beautiful here. No one would ever look at a house in this neighborhood and not think it's worth at least $300,000, even if it was a shack. My God, some people buy houses in these neighborhoods and tear the houses down just for the, the, the land underneath them so they can build in this community and all of those other nonsensical things. We have a moderator I won't name, but he has a wife like this, where she's always like, but who would ever want to do anything to us? What could ever go wrong here? Well, what could ever go wrong in a gated community with five-bedroom houses, with four lakes, with a neighborhood association, where kids ran around playing together completely safe? What could go wrong? Did it take a nuclear bomb going off? Did it take a pandemic? Did it take a trucker strike and a food shortage? Did it take a terrorist attack? What did it take? It took a situation where people were living at the very edge of their capability. And the people that bought these houses, I always say they can't pay for them, but they could. But they could barely pay for them. When they were done paying for their house and its insurance and its taxes, they basically had enough money to eat the way that people eat in the ghetto, but at least they weren't living there. And they traded what they ate and what they did for entertainment for better living conditions. And you can't totally fault them for it because people told them, yes, you can get these loans. Yes, it'll be okay. And don't worry. You might think that you know it's $400,000, but in two years, this house is going to be worth six or $700,000. If you decide you don't want it anymore, it's too expensive for you, sell it, take 300000 move somewhere else and use it as a down payment. Buy a, you can buy then, you can buy you know another $400,000 house a little further out, but you're only going to have a house payment on a $100,000 house. Isn't that great? And that's how a lot of these deals were made. When we were looking for a house, our first house, when we were scraping to get by years and years ago, Dorothy and I went in and talked to this lady. New housing development. And we were like edgy on whether or not we could afford this one house that we were looking at that we liked. And we were right on the edge with it, and we thought we could probably do it. And she sat down and showed us how we could get an extra $2,000 a year back in income taxes, as though that $2,000 would make up 
for buying a $150,000 house when we were on the edge. And said, see, now this is what your payment will be, but this is what it will come out to. In other words, if I take this 2000 divide it by 12 and figure out what a month that lets you take back, it's just like staying at your current income and tax level, but having your payment be this much lower. That's the type of manipulative bullshit that was going on. And that would have been back in 1997, 90, yeah, 1997, probably maybe 96, that we had that conversation. And that crap went on from 96 and earlier all the way up and until the recession hit in 2008, where the recession actually hit in 2007, but we became aware of it and honest about it in 2008. And then the actual results of it began to be seen on Wall Street and Main Street, even though everybody that was honest really knew it, it was already here. That's what can happen anywhere without the end of the world as we know it, without the zombie hordes attacking, without a new version of the bubonic plague, without the new world order, without any of it. That can happen here, where I live. It can happen exactly where you live. And it may have already happened to you, and it may not. But don't for a minute think that it can't. That lulls you into a sense of complacency. What you have got to do in your life to make sure that you don't end up like Mr. Lopez, I want you to think, this is what really drove this home and made me think, I have to talk about this today. The last thing that Mr. Lopez says is there's nothing I can do. So his house payment is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five thousand dollars a month. Okay, about one percent of the mortgage, so four hundred and forty four hundred dollars. Taxes, insurance, everything it might be higher than that because the taxes might be really high. Because I'm telling you, they were looking to sock people with taxes uh, that moved into these new communities out there. But call it $4,000. He's got a huge house he's got to pay the electric bills in. He's got seven kids he's got to feed. $4,000 does a lot to feed seven kids, but now it's just keeping a roof over their head. He's still got to drive to work, and there's probably very little construction work around his area, so he's probably driving further. He's at home less than even before. Even though he's working less, he's away more most likely. He's being paid less. There's no way his wife's working. I, I can't see it, how with seven kids there's any way that a woman could be working. I'm not putting that down. I'm not condemning that. I'm just talking about the harsh reality of seven. I, I, I don't know how parents deal with four kids, with parents that are pretty much home all the time. It's such a huge job to be a parent. It's amazing how, how well uh, a job human beings do as parents, honestly. To me, I, even the ones that we kind of pick on a little bit, when you really think about it, taking care of seven kids. So this guy kills himself at work, gets his hours cut back, gets paid less, he's away from his family more, and he's stuck. And this is what he means when he says there's nothing I, I can do. I can't sell it, because if I try to sell it, there's no, there's no way anybody's going to buy it. I, because I can't, because the bank won't let me sell it for what it's actually worth now. There's a delta here of about three hundred thousand dollars, two hundred and sixty, whatever. I don't have two hundred sixty thousand dollars. I'm stuck. I have honor, so I'm not going to walk. On top of my honor, I'm also a realist, and I know if I walk, I'm not getting another house. You know, I, 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 there's no way anybody's going to give me another loan, so I'm going to have to go rent an apartment. 
but all my money's being consumed by the house. I'm going to have to default on the loan for a couple months to save up enough money to get an apartment. And where the hell am I going to get an apartment where I'm going to be able to house reasonably comfortably seven children and a wife? So now I'm stuck. But why is he stuck? Because he bought a $440,000 house on a construction worker's salary. That's why he's stuck. And that's what I don't want for you, the audience. I don't want you stuck. And not stuck just with property. Stuck with a vehicle. Stuck with any piece of debt that puts you into a position where it comes down to reality and honor making you stuck. And there being nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do to get out of it. Short of breaking your own ethical code and your own honor code. And I'll tell you, for some people, and I think many people in this audience, we'll bend a law, we'll break a law if we have to. We'll do just about anything that we need to do to keep our family safe and, and our kids safe and, and the people around us safe and, and well cared for. Um, and if that means being politically incorrect, if it means being obnoxious or rude, so be it. I have priorities. But I think most of the people in this audience, the very type of people that are attracted to this audience, have certain things in them that are a lot like me. And I know this one thing about myself, and I know this is true for a lot of you out there, that personal moral compass that you have, those ethics that you have, that you believe this action is right and this action is wrong, they may not match up identically with mine. You have yours, I have mine. But whatever they are, whatever rules you've established for yourself in your life, breaking them is almost impossible for you. That's who I think Mr. Lopez is. I think there is a way for him to weasel out of this. There is a way for him to jump ship. There's got to be some way he could improve his situation. But he made a commitment. He's following his honor. And his honor is locking him up as much as the circumstances. So one of the things that we really need to think about is we're making long-term decisions in our life. And let's face it, buying a house is a, a long-term decision. It impacts us for at least 30 years for most people. We need to think about our honor. Beyond our budgets. We need to think about our honor beyond the good times. When you buy a house, think of it as being married for 30 years to a bank that you're taking the loan from, unless you're buying the house for cash, and that changes the whole equation. When you get married to a person, I hope you think about the vows that you take in sickness and health, in rich times and poor, in good times and bad. When you buy a house, you have to think about it the same way. And unfortunately, caught up in the zeal and propaganda of American corporatism, people do not. They think about the American dream, owning a home, and you deserve a home. And it's always better to be a homeowner than a renter. And you'll always be able to sell the house to somebody else. And even if property values go down, they never stay down for long. They always rebound. Well, I can show you neighborhoods where they'll never rebound. And I can show you, even in my area of Arlington, which is a nice area, I can show you little decayed streets where something happened to ruin that neighborhood. Sometimes it was one family. Sometimes it was one family that moved into that neighborhood, that treated their house like crap, that rented out four or five rooms in the house, that turned it into a, a, a pit, that made it somewhat acceptable for other people that were right on the edge to let their houses decay. And then the good people moved out, and more of the same type of people moved in, and that went into a spiral, and that neighborhood has never come back. I know a neighborhood not far from here. I would say it is about two miles from where I live. 
And it's not even a neighborhood. It's one street of a neighborhood. And that one street on that one neighborhood looks like, in fact, the ghetto. All right. I would say these houses were built in the mid-'80s, and all of the houses in the are, are really nice houses. And the houses on the ghetto street, since it's a development, are the same makes and models by the same builders that are on the streets that are just one level away and are beautiful and kept nice. What happened on this one street? On this one street... Our Texas clay soil has started damaging foundations. And not the typical foundation damage that's easily repaired with a few thousand dollars or even ten thousand dollars that a lot of people in this area with the clay soil have to deal with. I'm talking about upheaved driveways where the guy's driveway is one foot higher in one spot than the other. And sidewalks have collapsed into the ground. In other places they've come up. There's a tree that fell over from the ground shifting. That's how bad the ground shifted. Um, it's ruined foundations on these houses, and it's damaged them. And from one end of the street to the other, you have exactly the scenario that this, these people were talking about at this neighborhood in California. Now, it took longer to happen. It was a natural occurrence. No one is really to blame. I don't think the builder did it intentionally. They built the houses in the 80s, and this started happening in the late 90s. So they'd been there over 10 years before this occurred. Do I worry it could ever happen here? Trust me, everybody in Texas, uh, especially Dallas-Fort Worth area, worries about foundation issues. It's part of living here. But isn't it interesting that a totally different occurrence causes the same effect on a neighborhood? And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today. What happens to neighborhoods, towns, cities, and communities when one thing goes wrong that starts a spiral downward series of events that leads to the demise of that area? What does it look like? And if we ever have a major national catastrophe, what would that mean for the United States? And what would it look like all over the place? Let's think about the commonalities. The first thing that happens is the people living in an area that have not captured themselves into an immovable position. Right. The people that were very intelligent about what they bought, they could afford what they bought, you know, they bought under what they could afford. The loan officer said, Hey, you can have a seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage and the guy says, You know what, we can find a nice house for three fifty, four hundred or the guy said, You can have a four hundred thousand mortgage and the guy says, Hey, we can find what we need for two hundred or a hundred and a half. And they did that. So they had flexibility. And they were never living at the edge of what they were capable of. And they probably kept their home and their property a little bit better than everybody else. And as soon as they start to realize what's going on, because people that do that are generally in tune, and they start looking, okay, that guy's renting, that's not a big deal. He's just not wanting to sell his house right now. But wait a minute, that's starting to go wrong, etc. Those people who are generally the backbone of the community, the examples. So let's face it, when all of your neighbors have nice lawns, it's not easy to have a crappy lawn. Okay, And that goes for, you know, if none of your neighbors have a rusted-out junk car in their front yard, it's hard for you to have one. Once there's one or two there, it gets easier for people to do. And there's a, there's a, there's a, like a spectrum of what people are willing to let their property turn into. And most of the people are just like in politics, they're in the mushy middle. They'll do what everybody else does. So as long as those core people are there, they come up a level. As soon as those core people leave, they drop down to the lowest common denominator. All right? Well, that's what happens. The people that keep their lives flexible, the way I'm telling you to, when they see the decay of an area, they get out as quickly as they can. That, believe it or not, is the main switch that once thrown sets everything else into motion. As soon as the solid people leave. 
the people that are in that middle gravitate to one side or another. They either go to that lowest common denominator and they let their a place go into decay as well and they accept that that's the way their neighborhood is going to. Or the second wave follows the first wave out. And at that point we're probably looking at 20 to 25 percent of the people that were in the community are either completely gone and sold while they still could or are holding the property but renting out to a totally different level of society. And I'm not putting any level of society down. I'm just saying that in a neighborhood, generally, there's a certain uh, level that people are at to live in that neighborhood, financially and in life. And the more expensive that neighborhood is, the harder they work for it, the more they tend to value it. There's something to be learned there, too, about people buying houses that should never have been able to buy that house and not valuing what they were given because it was like free government money, cheap money, what have you. Um, but that starts to fall apart. Now house values start to fall, and the people that were asleep during this process, that didn't really realize that their neighborhoods were decaying, start to realize, hey, I don't like it here anymore, I want to move. So they put their houses up for sale to try to be the third wave out. But now it's too late. Now the property values have declined so much so that a lot of these people are selling houses for, they can't sell the house for what they owe on it. So they're going to have to leave owing money. A few of them will. They'll sell the house for 10000 less than they owe. They'll carry the balance difference. The bank will let them do it. They'll dump the house. They'll go somewhere else. They'll make deal with the situation. A lot of people will get to a point where they just can't do it. The bank won't let them or they can't afford it. So eventually they leave the house. They walk out and they say, there's nothing I can do. I borrowed 300000 for this house. It's worth 125000 now. They call the bank up and they say, I hope you like it. Choke on it. And they bail. Now we have vacant homes. And, of course, vacant homes are targets for vandalism and damage. And the neighborhood that once had vigilant neighbors that would watch each other's houses, all they can do is take care of their own house now as best they can. They're dealing with the same problems. They don't have time to worry about the 18 vacant homes on a few blocks. So the spiral continues. And eventually, no matter how pretty that neighborhood was, no matter how good that neighborhood was, no matter how nice that neighborhood was, no matter how well the intentions of the builder, the developer, or the initial residents, or even the people that came during the decline to try to fix it, you have what they have out there now, the gated ghetto. And the problem is only going to get worse in all of these suburban areas that are relatively far out from the cities. This is what they say is happening. The baby boomers are basically, when they say, are, you know, dying off, is they didn't put it that way, but that's what they're inferring. That if people get, you know, when we look at the 2030, 2040, a lot of people that are part of the baby boomer generation, from all the cancerous chemicals that we're ingesting, we start to die off. Or we move to Florida and go to the beach, or, you know, whatever. And uh, the young crowd, if we watch House Hunters on the uh, Home and Garden channel, they all want to go to the trendy, hip neighborhoods and pay, you know, $700,000 for a 1,000-square-foot condominium. And they want to move into, you know, so you've got the low-end worker that's going to be moving back into the, the, the row houses and the shacks, and then the trendy professionals are going to want to live in the, the trendy condominiums and apartments and things like that. And they want to be able to walk to get their food and walk to the coffee shop and walk to the, the bar and, and all that good stuff. So there's going to be this mass exodus back toward the cities is what they're saying. I don't think they're completely wrong. I think there will be a large move 
closer to the cities to the people for the people that are dependent on cities here's the key in the cities that continue to either thrive or at least maintain what they have but i don't think they see the other side this is what i was talking about yesterday a lot of people that can make a reasonable income without being attached to that city are going to get the hell out of dodge they're going to move out into the sticks. They're going to move further out. Instead of 90 miles from the big cities, they're going to be 250 miles from the big cities or more. And you're going to see that drive toward rural land. And, and the reason is simple. If I live in a place where you pack 400 homes on 40 acres and everybody gets a tenth of an acre, creating the downward spiral for the entire neighborhood is relatively easy to do. It's such an unstable situation. One or two of those 400 have a massive impact on the other 398. I know it doesn't seem to make sense. We have been led to believe that there's strength in numbers, and in some places there are, but not in these communities. That one house with the fence starting to fall down and the guy that's keeping a couple pit bull dogs for his dog fighting in the back and, and, and all these other, and the one house that's dealing with a little bit of drugs in those nice neighborhoods, it's like cancer. It's not easy to spot when it starts and it metastasizes and spreads and by the time the residents that care begin to understand what's happening, it's time for basically chemotherapy, which is burn it and run away which is the entire downward spiral I just talked about. So the residents that care, when they see the cancer, they realize it's a terminal case, they jump, and it spreads out. You live in a rural community where you have 40 acres of property, and there's uh, eight houses on those 40 acres. Well, if one starts to go to disrepair quickly, it's easy to spot. It's really easy to spot, yet it's still a small problem because it's only one. And communities tend, in those situations, to take care of each other and to help each other. And if nothing else, if a guy goes bust and he lets his house go and deteriorate, one of those other seven neighbors is likely to phone up the bank and go, the house is shot, man, but I'd like the land. Buy the land. And then there's no expectation of all the homes looking the same with the manicured lawn, with the one shrub and the one tree in the front yard, and nobody leaves their car in the driveway, everybody puts it in the garage, everybody has two cars. If you want three cars, you need a three-car garage. There's no cars parked in driveways in these neighborhoods. It messes up the view of the neighborhood, for God's sakes, right? That's how these neighborhoods are run. So they have this ability for little things that wouldn't bother anybody out in rural environments to take them apart, piece by piece by piece. That's why I don't like the suburbs. That's just how I feel. Now, I said it could happen anywhere, so can it happen out in rural America? Of course it can. And there's little towns throughout rural America that are dealing with the same situations right now. But I'll tell you what, they're mostly in planned and developed communities. They're in suburbs, even if they don't call them a suburb, because there's towns that are so small there's no such thing as a suburb. You know, I come from a town uh, in Pennsylvania called Pottsville. Trust me, there's no suburbs of Pottsville. It's not big enough to have a suburb. Um, but it's that suburb neighborhood style that seems to me to be the most vulnerable, and it's the way most American homeowners live. So what does this teach us about something that happens on a national level? It teaches us how bad it can really be, because that's how we get stuck. That's how we get stuck. Because if it's everywhere, where do you go? 
See, if you lived in the gated ghetto out there in San Jacinto, Hemet, California, whatever the hell they want to call it, and you saw this coming, you had a lot of opportunity between, you know, I'd say about mid-2007, man, you knew. By 2008, you really knew. You had all that time in there where you could have jumped and went somewhere. But if you have decay across the nation, where do you go? I think we all get back to the same place. We get the hell out of the cities. And we get the hell out of the suburbs. And that's why I think the rural land play is a good play right now. I, and look, folks, I don't have a, site, a banner on my site. Go here to buy rural land. And I'm not going to make a fortune if my listeners listen to me and go out and buy rural land. I have no, no financial incentive whatsoever to recommend at least shopping for, pricing, and considering as part of your investments for your future rural land. I get nothing from it. All right? All I get is people that listen to me, that spend money with me and my sponsors, spending a big chunk of their money on something that doesn't benefit any of us, and actually reducing the amount of money they have to spend on the things that I recommend that would be beneficial. Right? So it's actually not beneficial to me. And I'm okay with that, because I believe in doing what's right for the audience. And I'm telling you, in this situation, this is how I feel, and these are the reasons why. But beyond buying land, because for some people that's not an option right now. What are the things that I think that you need to be doing if you're in a suburban area, even one that looks like it's going to be okay right now? Number one, stay flexible. If you are overburdened with debt and your financial situation is still decent, don't be lulled into a false sense of security. Use the, the surplus to pay the debt to make yourself flexible so if you see the signs that tell you you need to get out, you can. Number two, stay lightweight. Now, I'm not talking about what, how many X's are on your shirt size, but that's a good idea too. In other words, when you do buy items, buy items that are easy to take with you. Have the flexibility of being able to take the majority of the things that you have with you. I would not be investing a lot of money right now in pools, even though I own a pool. You know, I built it eight years ago, I guess. So, you know, that's a big investment that's probably not going to pay itself back any time in the short run. I wouldn't be doing big investments into anything right now that's not portable or unless it is the type of thing that gives you a good ROI. In other words, putting some decent cabinets and countertops in a kitchen is one of the great ways to be able to sell a home for more than the ones around it by taking it up just one notch above. But don't go take a $150,000 house and put $20,000 worth in the kitchen because you're never going to get it back. But simple upgrades, that makes sense. Number three, pay attention. Pay attention to your neighborhood. Every once in a while, this is going to sound crazy, but no one does this. But you've got to do it. You probably drive home from work or shops or whatever. You take the same route. You go down a main street, maybe one side street, and another little side street, and then into your house. And you do that every single day. And it, it, you know, you almost, your car almost knows where to go. Whenever you're leaving your neighborhood, if you have to be going south instead of north, you probably have to remind yourself not to make the right, to make the left. That's just most people. right? We have the best way to get home. We figured it out and we've done it. What does that mean? That means that we only see that little 10% of our neighborhood. Take a walk or take a drive through your entire neighborhood once a month. Look how many for sale signs there are. Look at the for sale signs that are in yards and how long they stay there. Go to Realtor.com. Look those listings up. See what the houses are listed for. 
If they have a little paper tube where they tell you how much the house is right on there with all the amenities, pull it out, compare it to your house. Say, if I sold my house today for this amount, what would happen? See if the house sells. Pay attention. Find the warning signs early so you are either going to make a decision then to batten down the hatches and stay put with an understanding of the risks or you're going to say, hey, this house listed for 169 it's not even as nice as ours. I know we could get 169 for ours. I don't feel good about this place. It's time to find a better place. Let's do it while we can because the other signs are showing me this neighborhood's in decline. But pay attention. Absolutely have to pay attention. Rule number four, and this is really important, always be shopping for the next place to live. And I don't mean always be buying. I don't mean always be spending money. Remember what I said about real estate yesterday. Shopping is free. You can shop online. You can take drives around. Pay attention to the new houses being built in your neighborhood a little bit further away. What are they selling for? Pay attention to do you want to live out in that rural environment? What are rural property values doing? Take little mini vacations. Instead of spending your weekend at a mall, Spending money you don't have, spend a couple dollars on gas, drive two hours away from where you live into that semi-rural environment, away from the subdivisions, and look at some properties that are listed and just say to yourself, and here's the important one, how could we make this work? Not how will we make this work, how could, we, how will we means we're stuck and we have to do it. That's what I don't want you to ever do. I want you to sit there and go, how, how would we make this work? What could I do for a living out here? What could I do with my job to transfer my income? What type of business could I establish if I were here? What do the people in this town do? What are the people in this town like? Do I like these people? Do they suck? Right? You know? Am I a guy that doesn't want to hear one word about religion and I'm in the middle of the Bible Belt now and I'm going to have a missionary knocking on my door every day? Does that bother me? If it bothers me, maybe I don't want to be there. If it doesn't bother me, I don't care. Come on in and tell me what you got to say, all right? But you got to, you got to, and I'm not picking on those people, okay? I'm not picking on you at all if you're one of those folks. I'm just saying, if you go to a community, it's on you to determine what that community is like and determine whether you fit into it or not. Not for you to move into a community and then expect the community to revolve around and change around you. And so many people do that. And then they end up unhappy and they end up having to desert. Well, you don't want to have to desert. That's what we're always talking about here, is being able to find the place that's the right place for you to live and improve your quality of life today. So those are my big rules. Stay low on debt and flexible. Stay lightweight with your ability to move. Pay attention and always be looking for other places to live. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a big survivalist topic, right? Because, well, if the end of the earth comes, you better already have a well-stocked place and somewhere to go. But remember, the law of probabilities is that we focus on the disasters most likely to affect us. And the, the disasters most likely to affect you as a homeowner in the short term are a sudden decline of the property values and the quality of life in your neighborhood. And that's a great time to bug out. And it's not the bug out that most people think of. But it's a conscious bug out. It's a conscious, you know what, this neighborhood is not going to make it much longer. Uh, I have uh, so, uh, some friends of our family. We're not close or anything, but we know them, and they're all right. And uh, they had bought a really nice brand-new home, custom-built in this area, and all of a sudden they saw zoning things, and there was a tremendous number of very large-scale apartment complexes going to be built all around and surrounding this new housing development. 
when they bought the house, that wasn't supposed to happen. Now, nothing against apartment dwellers, but these people felt that it would adversely affect their property values. So they sold the house and built another custom-built house uh, on a lake uh, in a place where there would be no way they would ever build apartments there. I thought they were crazy. I'm like, and I still think they're crazy because in both cases, they really were spending money they didn't have. But you know what? Even with the stability of the Texas real estate market, they were right. The property values in that neighborhood, because of what building all those apartments did and bringing in a different type of person to that area and creating a different feel to the neighborhood, dropped by about 25%. So when you're buying a half-million-dollar house, 25%, that's a lot of money. That's $100,000. They made the jump with a little bit of appreciation and bought an even bigger and more expensive house. I still think they're going to go bankrupt someday. But, hey, I can't fault them for paying attention and knowing in advance when to jump. And that's the other thing. you got to pay attention to things like zoning requests and things like that. Pay attention to what's going on in your neighborhood. Somebody building a giant supermarket, you know, one street over, in some scenarios with the right, you know, right, you know, kind of market establishment, might make the property go up. In some others, it might make it go down. And you need to pay attention to these things. Because remember, disaster probability, once you own a home, one of the probabilities of disaster you have to monitor is something affecting that home as one of your chief assets. In other words, you insure your car, you insure your house, but there's things that insurance doesn't cover. And there's no insurance for your property value dropping in half. So pay attention to it. Look for signs of decay around you and be ready to react to them before you're forced either to react in a negative way, in a way that really hurts you long term, or to feel like Mr. Lopez and say there's nothing I can do and you just have to grin and bear it and hope things get better. Neither one of those are ways to improve your life today. The way to improve your life today, always pay attention, always be aware, and always make the best decisions for you and your family. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if time gets up, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.